0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Refugees from around the world are finding homes in New England.
2: It was a dream to live in America and to be successful. So it started like uh, just a dream, and then the dream came through, and now I'm in America. From
1: the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. From Lowell, Mass., to Portland, Maine, to New Haven, Connecticut, the region is taking in an ever-increasing number of people fleeing violence in Syria. We'll meet some of them. We'll also ask Only a Game's Bill Littlefield about why the New England Patriots became the only major sports franchise that's named after a region.
3: Whether you're in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Maine
1: or Vermont or New Hampshire, you you regard them as your home team. And just in time for Halloween, ghastly stories of graves unearthed in search of vampires.
0: Mainly they were looking for what they considered fresh blood in the heart or sometimes in the other organs like the liver or the lungs. It's next.
4: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: Coming up, Bill Littlefield of Only a Game considers the psyche of the New England sports fan and what holds Red Sox nation together. Don't
3: tell me that uh, baseball is uh, life and death. It's much more important than
1: that. But first, the number of Syrian refugees resettling in New England has risen sharply in just the last year, from 132 arrivals in 2015 to nearly 700 this year. Of course, this effort reflects President Obama's commitment to welcome more than 10,000 refugees across the U.S. this year, and also the national political rhetoric that continues to swirl around the vetting of those fleeing war zones. WBUR reporter Shannon Dooling visited one of the oldest resettlement agencies in New England to learn more about who is arriving and the people welcoming them.
5: In the basement of the First Baptist Church in Lowell, Massachusetts, newly arrived refugees from Somalia and Tanzania stand shoulder to shoulder with new arrivals from Afghanistan and Syria. They're all sifting through sweaters, scarves, jackets, and hats, looking to stock up ahead of the cold weather, while children hammer away on the keys of an old piano.
4: I don't think they're ready for a New England winter, (laughs) so I think this is really good.
5: Amanda Mujica of Belmont, Mass., helped coordinate this clothing drive for the refugees. They've all been resettled through the International Institute of New England, which has been operating in Lowell for nearly a century.
4: It's been outstanding. I mean, people come from the North Shore, from the South Shore. I think people have keep hearing about refugees and they're trying to think about ways that they can help and i think this was a way they could they could make a difference
5: most of what folks know about refugees comes from news reports and headlines but as more families resettle in places like Lowell, there's more interest in actually getting to know refugees personally. Cheryl Hamilton is site director of the International Institute's Lowell office. She says the organization is seeing an influx of people calling, wanting to get involved. There's a lot of rhetoric right now against immigrants, so that's certainly drawing some interest. But also I think that the families are here now and people are starting to connect with them, and
1: like our Syrian families, and they're hearing about them and they're telling other people and they're getting excited.
5: The arrival of Syrian refugees has been especially scrutinized since the country's civil war began five years ago. In the wake of the Paris terror attacks last year, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker said he no longer wanted to accept Syrians until he learned more about the vetting process. Baker now says he's satisfied with the screening after learning that most of the refugees coming here are women, children, and families.
4: My name is Zainab. I came in here uh, four months ago.
5: My name is uh, Khalil. Uh, I'm from Syria. Yeah.
2: That's
5: Zainab, her father Khalil, and mother Amina, three members of the Abdo family. The four youngest children are in school. The Abdos are among the more than 200 Syrian refugees who now call Massachusetts home and the more than 800 Syrian refugees throughout New England. The family fled Aleppo in 2013 after living more than two weeks in the rubble of their bombed house, surviving on bread alone. Khalil says he remembers the exact date they left their home and began walking toward the Turkish border. <laughs> October 24th, 2013. It's unforgettable, Khalil tells me through a translator. He says they walked for more than seven hours, mostly single file, trying to avoid bombs planted along the road. They took a bus to Istanbul, where they stayed with family while they applied for refugee status. After almost three years, Khalil says they learned they were coming to Massachusetts. They were afraid of everything, he says. A new language, new culture, the transition. What would life be like here? But now, they're very happy and grateful to be here. There were 68 Syrian refugees resettled here last year. That number is up to 155 this year. Again, Cheryl Hamilton of the International Institute
1: it takes, on average, two to four years to even get through the resettlement process. So even if you'd applied for resettlement in 2012, we wouldn't anticipate you seeing you until 2014, 2015. So obviously those applications increased over the last four years, so that makes sense that now we're seeing the influx.
5: Hamilton also cites President Obama's increase in the national refugee quota as contributing to the recent wave. They put it um, the jacket, uh, some sort of, uh, no, no, What's tomorrow, Annie. Khalil Abdo and his wife are at the clothing drive in the church basement, chatting with a few of the Syrians who came here before them. Abdo says he knows the winter here will be cold. But for now, he says the changing colors of the leaves and the cooler weather is
1: very nice. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. The Abdo family you just met left their home in Syria just about three years ago. One year after that, in November of 2014, Fawad Aboud left Iraq. He had been teaching English in high schools there and served as an interpreter with a security firm, making him a target for ISIS, which was then expanding its hold in Iraq. Feeling this danger, Fawad left the country, getting a visa to come to the U.S. Catholic Charities, which helps to resettle refugees, provided support for him to come to Hartford, Connecticut. He told his story to the project Words in Transit by New England Public Radio, in partnership with Amherst College's Copeland Colloquium.
2: My name is Fuad Aboud. I'm from Iraq. It was a dream to live in America, like anybody else's dream to live in America and to be successful. So it started like uh, just a dream, and then the dream came through, and now I'm in America. So I used to live in a province called Wasat. It was very close to the border of Diyala, which is under the control of ISIS. ISIS began to call most of the English teachers there in Diyala province, because they speak they speak the language of the infidel, because they didn't like anybody who speaks English, they didn't like anybody who, who had any contact with the American Marines. I worked as an interpreter, translator, with a British security company. Most of my friends and all of Badra City, was they volunteered. They joined the army volunteering for defending their their areas, their their province. So I have up to now some friends still firing ISIS in the borders here. Every day they they text me. I called my friend when he was in the front line and I talked to him under the he was under the firefight and he was making jokes when he was talking to me. I I told him, hey, be careful. He said, no, don't worry, I'm under cover. I didn't like the situation back there in Iraq. My friends, my fellows, they could adopt it, but I I couldn't live with such such chaos situation. Even my brothers and family, they, they are okay, but I, I didn't feel that I, I, I can or I had to stay with like this there in Iraq. I wanted to go to somewhere else somewhere better than Iraq, some place that uh, that I can get my rights as a human being. And I think America is the right place. And uh, I applied since 2010. And uh, I came here just after four years. I'm making four meetings there on the, at the American Embassy in Baghdad. Two times, three times I went there. Uh, and they asked me for some evidence. Do I have some papers of threats? paper? Did somebody, if somebody really threatened me, or did somebody attacked me? They just want to make sure that I'm the real person who, who sent them the email. They want just to make sure that I am Fuad Adabud. They said that my case is accepted, and now I'm allowed to to go to the United States. We, we've been in a group, like about two families and from Baghdad, Christian families and Muslims and some singles. I, I was me and two others. And then in Jordan, we find that there's too many immigrants, like from Somalia, we joined together in the airport. And then we came to America. But then and, and at New Jersey airport, we separated in America, the wide America. It was just like a shock to come to America from Iraq. Next day, I woke up in the morning, and find myself in America, in some place, in an apartment with some people from Somalia. I jumped from my bed to, to the street. I didn't know where to go. So it was very cold in the morning. It was 6 a.m. And I stayed stayed in the, in, in the street waiting. I don't know what I was waiting for, but st- I just stayed in the street, just shocked. And I don't know, just watching. I saw some faces that I didn't used to see before in my country. I was a bit frightened, but I knew that it's not going to last for a long time, that something good will happen and I'm going to see something different. I'm I'm going to change my place to some better place maybe. And then I did. First, the Catholic Charities used to give us like 200 every month and they pay for the apartment rent and uh, they pay the bill. They did it for two months, three months, and then they put me in a job. Some manufacturer for making some aluminum parts. I worked there for about one month and a half, and then got laid off. It was a very hard job, and uh, I used to wake up at four in the morning and come back at four in the evening, so almost I spent all the day there. These days, last week, I used to go and help some people to study English as a second language at the library, some immigrant people. My goal isn't for to, to work and uh, make fortune and be rich. I am here to, to study, to pursue my study, to study, to have the, the, the master degree in English. I have planned for everything, but I didn't expect that they are not going to accept my degree, my bachelor university, Iraq university degree. First, I have to to evaluate it, and then I have to complete some courses before I was uh, a high school teacher and I have two years experience in teaching in elementary school. And uh, I hope I could find some same job like a teacher or tutor here in America. So I'm working on that and I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I hope finally I will get the job and uh, maybe pursue my study. Yes, America is the dreamland, but you still have to work. You have to work hard, actually, to accomplish your dream.
1: That's Fuad Aboud, telling his story to the project Words in Transit by New England Public Radio. To see and hear more stories of people making new homes in New England, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up from Brady to Big Poppy to Bentley, Bill Littlefield gives us his take on New England's sports culture. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. As a region, New England is held together by history and tradition, by geography and politics. But what about sports? There are, of course, the Patriots to hold us together, the only NFL team to use a region to define its territory. They are a powerhouse off to another great start this year, despite their star Tom Brady missing games at the start of the season due to the Deflategate controversy. They’ve only really held a grip though on New England since the 1990s, and they’re as likely to be loathed outside our region as loved within it. Then, of course, there's Red Sox Nation, a fan base with a deep-seated love of the baseball team from Boston that stretches from Maine across to Vermont and south to most of Connecticut. We wanted to find out more about the sporting culture of New England and the role that sports can play in helping to define us. So we turned to Bill Littlefield, the longtime host of Only a Game, a weekly NPR show about sports that's produced at WBUR in Boston. Bill Littlefield, welcome to Next. Thank you. Well, first of all, let's start with this. Do you think that there is a New England sports identity that you've identified over all these years of covering sports here?
3: Oh, well, I think there are a number of different identities. And of course, they're, uh, they shift over time, or they certainly have shifted over time. Uh, the most dramatic, of course, was the identity that most people associated with the Boston Red Sox which involved losing for a very long time and not winning the World Series within the lifetime of almost anybody. But that was blown away in 2004 and 2007 and then again in 2014. Uh, So uh, suddenly the Red Sox were uh, three-time World Series winners in the new century, and um, that identity utterly changed.
1: Well, Well, talk about that a little bit, Bill, and how you think that's changed the way this region thinks about sports in in general, or the Red Sox in particular. I mean, with that hanging over our heads for such a long time, the notion that the Red Sox would never win, and then within a few short years, <laughs> turning from essentially a loser into another evil empire—you know, uh, one of the big boys in the block—mean I how do you think that's changed the perceptions of the of the Sox in the region? Well,
3: Well, first of all, the perception that the Red Sox were anything other than a big boy on the block was an erroneous perception. The Red Sox have always been one of the bigger, uh, better financed (laughs) baseball teams. It always kind of uh, uh, amused me that people used to say, oh, the Yankees have all the money. But then when they did the charts, uh, the Red Sox were right up there with the Dodgers and the Yankees in terms of money spent, uh, sometimes wisely, sometimes not. But I think it's more philosophically. You know, People liked – a certain number of people who rooted for the Red Sox liked thinking of themselves as special because uh, even though their team would sometimes get very close and they would have wonderful individual players – Uh, They wouldn't quite have enough to win the World Series. Something would always go wrong. Uh, Somebody would fall uh, rounding third base. Somebody would hold the ball in the outfield. You notice how I'm not naming names because I don't believe (laughs) that any of these individual acts were in fact responsible. But uh, you know what I'm saying. People enjoyed uh, thinking of themselves as special. And once they won uh, back in 2004, the first time, uh, you can't, Think of yourself as special anymore as a Red Sox fan. You're just a fan of
1: another, another team that's won the World Series a couple of times. I, I think about um, major league teams and the fan bases they have around the country. I suppose you can make an argument for, say, the, the St. Louis Cardinals. There's fans in, in several states around the Midwest that grew up rooting for the Cardinals. But the Red Sox perhaps have the only nation of its kind where there are people from, from six and, and more states who just regularly assume that they're going to be Red Sox fans because of where they grew up and who they grew up watching?
3: Well, New England is uh, an identifiable region. I think that that has part that, that's part of the explanation for what you're talking about. Uh, with the Red Sox, I think a lot of it has to do with history. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the association with uh, all sorts of um, near-mythical uh, figures, including Babe Ruth. Uh, it has to do with Fenway Park uh, as a... Uh, one of the very few, I mean, with Wrigley Field, really the only other baseball stadium which represents uh, history, represents time. You know, yes, it's been changed. Of course, somebody... Coming to Fenway Park uh, today who had been transported from the 20s would say, gee, this doesn't look much like the ballpark that, uh, <laughs> where I saw games. But uh, still, uh, there is, it is the same location. It is the same place. Uh, there are ghosts there, no question about it. Uh, and,
1: and that has a lot to do with the attraction as well, I think. I, I want to move on to the New England Patriots, because when we started the program, you, you go on Google and you try to find every single organization called New England, any any identifier that says New England is is a region. But unfortunately, <laughs> like all the Google searches come up as New England Patriots because they've become this phenomenon. Maybe you can take us back first, Bill, to a time before it was like this, because now, I lived in Boston in, in the late 80s and early 90s for, for a time, and you know... People didn't think about the Patriots the same way they think about the Patriots now. No, they certainly didn't. In fact, uh, for a number of years, the Patriots
3: were a joke. Uh, They were a disgrace in terms of the locker room behavior of their players toward female writers. Uh, So, no, they were a joke, and they were a joke on the field. They were a bad team for the most part. And... uh, Uh, You're right. They certainly were not uh, something that people took uh, seriously or took into their hearts. But a number of things, I think, have come together to create the phenomenon that the New England Patriots are today. One of them is they've won a hell of a lot of football games, including a handful of Super Bowls. And uh, winning tends to uh, collect a lot of people's attention. Uh, another is that they have Tom Brady, who is, uh, as many people will tell you about the marketing of football, uh, pro football today, it's, uh, pretty much dependent on uh, a handful of superstars, and Tom Brady is certainly one of them, also happens to be married to a woman who I think is probably making even more money than he is, so you got that celebrity couple thing going on, which is, is very important because Brad and, and Angelina are no longer married as I understand it (laughs) so you got to have somebody at the top of that uh, celebrity uh, pyramid and then you have conspiracy theories, and and America loves nothing so much as they love conspiracy theories. That uh, what did Tom know, and when did he know it? As far as how much air was in the football, so it's just ridiculous. And then and people who hate the Patriots have conspiracy theories about you know whether the entire league's uh, decision making process is tilted towards Bill Belichick and the Patriots, and they love that stuff, and and that makes Patriots fans very defensive, and. Uh, It sets up all kinds of subplots which
1: uh, interest all sorts of people. But that's why I find them to be such an interesting outlier, because I I think you and I will agree that the Yankees were always seen as the big, bad Yankees, and they're the team that all across America— people pick out to hate. I guess I just find it interesting that the football team that represents Boston and New England, the New England Patriots, is that team. I mean, they're the team that everyone else loves to hate. How do you think that sits on the, on the psyche of the New England sports fan to be a fan of, of Tom Brady and know that everyone else just can't stand them?
3: Well, it's probably a little dangerous to generalize, but I think some people probably love it you know, as some people probably enjoy it thoroughly. <laughs> uh, and, and, of course, some people think that the attitude towards the patriots is ridiculous uh, because, um, you know, first of all, the, well, the whole so-called deflate gate thing was – Um, I mean, nobody short of Donald Trump could have made that up. And uh, so it was ridiculous. But um, who who knows? Probably some people enjoy being hated and enjoy the fact that their team is hated by fans around the country. And some people are probably uh, unhappy about it and and wish to disabuse fans around the country of their mistaken
1: uh, impression. Now, back in the early days, of course, they were the Boston Patriots. Why do you think they maintained the name the New England Patriots. And what do you think that that brings to to the franchise, the fact that they are attempting to identify as no other regional sports team does as New England as opposed to Boston, which is really where we know they're based?
3: Well, maybe they were trying to get out of that, <laughs> that historical slump that they were in <laughs> earlier because they, play, they used to play their games everywhere. I mean, they played at Boston College. They played at Fenway Park. Uh, They played all over the place until uh, they finally found a home in in Foxborough. Uh, Also, as you have suggested, uh, it is a way to give people all over the region a sense of ownership of the team. So whether you're in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Maine or Vermont or New Hampshire, you you regard them as your home team, uh, even though sometimes it's a certain amount of traveling involved to get to the home, uh, it
1: still works out. Of course, there was a, a very brief window of time in which right here in Hartford, where I'm sitting right now, we believe the New England Patriots might come and, and live here. And it did, honestly, some irreparable damage to the psyche of a lot of Connecticut sports fans who thought they might be getting a, a major league uh, football team coming through. Did Did you ever, from the first time you heard that the New England Patriots would be moving south to Hartford, did you ever believe it would happen, Bill? Uh, no.
3: I, I regard that as one of the great uh uh, sleight-of-hand uh, maneuvers ever perpetrated by the owner of a pro-sports franchise, um, it, rivaled only by the, the hoodwinking of Rhode Island by Kurt Schilling, who wasn't even an owner. Um, no, I never believed that the Patriots would, uh, would move. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, we probably shouldn't
1: have believed it here either. But uh, no, but...
3: well, it, it's it's a, it's such a classic uh, song and dance. You know, you threaten to go somewhere in order to get something that you want, and and Robert
1: Kraft certainly got everything he wanted. You now, uh, the the governor who got ho- hoodwinked later went to jail, not for that, but for something else. That's I suppose for <laughs> for another story. Um, I, I was jotting down the things that I identify with the collegiate sports culture of New England and. I came up with, well, the Yale-Harvard game. Of course, there's UConn women's and and men's basketball, which have been dominant for years. There's so many schools and so many sports that are played. Is there anything that ties us together in, in in a collegiate way, I suppose, around sports? The ones that
3: you've mentioned to some extent, I think, especially the Yale Harvard game, is just because it's been going on for such a long time and people love to make fun of uh, fans on both sides of the field waving their handkerchiefs at each other, that sort of thing. Um, my own favorite basketball team in the region is the Bentley University women's basketball team, which is, at, as we speak, uh, rated number one Division II team in the nation and won a national championship a couple of years ago and is coached by uh, a woman who is perhaps the most accomplished uh, basketball coach in the country or certainly one of them so uh, you know uh, it just depends on on sort of how uh, how much you're willing to so look beyond the headlines and and see what you can find
1: finally the boston marathon of course has has been one of the great sporting events in america in the world for for a very long time and just a few years ago when the bombings happened It took on a a new kind of significance. Can you talk, Bill, about what the Boston Marathon meant to the city and to the region and then what it means now after those events?
3: Well, I think what it has come to mean uh, is it has come to be a symbol of uh, endurance, perseverance, determination. Uh, You know, you're not going to stop. The Boston Marathon, no matter the outrage that accompanies uh, – did accompany a, a marathon uh, during that, uh, that awful bombing incident, uh, people are going to continue to come. People are going to continue to celebrate the accomplishment. People are going to continue to run, even lots and lots and lots of people who have uh, no hope at all of being competitive in it, uh, they want to be part of it. And uh, it's that sort of uh, event. It transcends sports. It's something people want to be a part of. They want to be there for it. They want to, if nothing else, stand along the side of the road and clap as the runners go by uh, because it has become a, a historical event and, uh, and a celebration of, uh, of endurance and, and uh, uh, the, d- the determination to carry
1: on uh, no matter what. Bill Littlefield is host of Only a Game at WBUR and NPR. He joined us today from the studios of WBUR in Boston. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up, in time for a traditional New England Halloween, a haunted trolley ride and tales of vampires rising from the grave. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. You've heard of haunted houses. Maybe you've ventured out on a haunted hayride or two. But imagine heading into a patch of dark New England woods on a chilly October night on a trolley car any other month of the year, the Connecticut Trolley Museum makes for a family-friendly outing alongside a stretch of historic track. But in October, it becomes Rails to the Dark Side. Next, producer Andrew Maraskin took a tour.
6: My name is Larry Bryan. I am vice president of the Connecticut Electric Railway Association, which uh, is regularly known as the Connecticut Trolley Museum. So, uh,
4: where were the, when were these rails laid down? Was there like a trolley line to Hartford that was oh, yeah. connecting uh, it to, to somewhere else?
6: Originally, the right of way was part of the Hartford and Springfield Street Railway Company. And this branch from Warehouse Point to Rockville operated from 1906 to 1926. As the story goes, That in 1906, when they built the original trolley line through here from Warehouse Point to Rockville, they had to move a cemetery. And ever since then, the souls of those who were moved come out during Halloween to haunt the trolley line. And unfortunately, they do come out, and our guests get to experience what happens.
4: What's our agenda tonight?
6: First thing we're going to go do is ride the trolley car down about a mile and a quarter, uh, and things are going to happen out there. In the dark woods of East Windsor. And then we're going to come back, and everyone's going to get off the car and go through some other Halloween venues. You're going to be going through a maze, and then you'll be going through inside the visitor center, in all places you will be scared. <laughs> <laughs>
4: nope.
0: I said, I am not rushing to get a hold of the bird.
4: What's going on here? Oh my God. We're being surrounded by torch-wielding figures.
6: <laughs>
1: anybody,
4: anybody scared? No? Were you scared? No. What did you think about that? Funny. Were you scared? A little bit.
6: Now we're going to go on the next portion of your business.
4: Wow. Do you want to describe it?
6: It's sort of like a tunnel of green light and things happen. You have to be prepared, but let's-, let's Oh,
4: wow, down. you really the can't tunnel. see these people coming from behind the, 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 the light tunneling. tunnel.
0: Woo. I think that's a head <laughs> oh, hanging off the ceiling.
5: <laughs> and there's a grass uh, right
0: there. Disorientating. <laughs> oh, there's a
4: the man made out of grass. She <laughs> <laughs> didn't <laughs> give me a high <laughs> five are you scared now? Yes! This is the
2: um, dead teddy bear room, and there's probably a gazillion teddy bears dangling in your way.
4: I'm here!
2: <laughs> yeah, Bert. surely die.
6: Okay, follow me, please. Follow me. This way, please. This way. Follow me, please. Follow me. This way, please. This car on your right, in Hartford, Connecticut, is known as a funeral car. It used to take the dearly departed and their families to Cedar Hill Cemetery for internment. the old saying goes, people are dying around Now, this car here operated in Cleveland, Ohio, unfortunately, in 1927. It uh, was taking all the schools, high school seniors, to their prom, and they ran too fast around a curve and ran off the track and crashed. Most of them were stuck here for eternity, not very happy.
4: How is prom? Amazing! If I ever got to go. I'm proud of you all. Please come
6: back. Happy Halloween. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas.
4: What did you think of the experience?
3: It was fun. Oh, uh, you fun. couldn't. It was the first time in my life, and it was awesome. This one here. Oh my! How was it, babe?
4: It was scary. <laughs> it was very scary. It was scary. This is great. This funny. What did you What did you guys think?
2: That was pretty nice. Scariest thing I've
4: ever done, literally. I could not breathe. What other scary things have you done? Like the Six Flags haunted houses don't even compare to this. This It's like so much scarier. Why is it so much scarier? Like all the effects, like the darkness, like where I can't even see at all. Like it's so crazy. And then I'm screaming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's Andrea Moraskin reporting. You can find more about the Connecticut Trolley Museum on nextnewengland.org. So here's a spooky story for you. Edwin Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island, was already seriously ill with tuberculosis in January of 1892 when his 19 year old sister, Lena, died of the same disease. With no medical cure, neighbors convinced Edwin's father to let them do something dreadful, exhume Lena's grave to check her heart for liquid blood. If blood was found in the heart, and it was, the villagers said that that meant she was a vampire rising from the grave to feed on her brother's living flesh. They cut out the heart, burned it, and fed the ashes to Edwin, hoping this would cure him. He died two months later. Folklorist Michael Bell has documented over 80 such exhumations in the United States, most of them in New England. He's the author of the book Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires, and is working on a second book, The Vampire's Grasp. Michael Bell, welcome to Next. Glad to be here. Uh, First of all, tell us about the title of your book, Food for the Dead. Where does it come from?
0: Actually, it came from a a poem that was written by an eyewitness who saw one of these vampire exhumations in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts in the early 1800s. And he decided not only to describe it in prose, but to end his article that was published in a newspaper with a poem. And the last line was, the living was food for the dead. Hmm.
1: Tell us about how this type of vampire mythology made its way to the New England states.
0: Well, most of us, and I think rightly, when we think of vampires, we think of Transylvania, Romania, Eastern Europe. And certainly that's where it came from. So it's surprising that in an area like New England, which was settled by people from, mainly from England, that we have a folk tradition that's really not known in England, but is very well known in Eastern Europe. And I think it came here with some of the early immigrants from Eastern Europe. There weren't a lot of them, but enough to make an impact, and and many of them were traveling what we would call today quack doctors who were selling cures. One of the cures they were selling, of course, was for consumption or what, what we call now pulmonary tuberculosis, And so they would travel throughout the Northeast, set up shop, advertise in a local newspaper, charge people money, and then when things didn't work out too well for the cures, they would travel on to another town or another village. I think we have good evidence from the very first case that I found in New England, which was in 1784 in Willington, Connecticut. Uh, A town official writes to a local newspaper complaining about a foreign quack doctor in town who was selling cures for consumption and in fact had induced one of the town officials to exhume the bodies of his children to try to stop the disease from killing the rest of his family. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that is uh, it's almost like a smoking gun. Once it got here, of course, it became part of folk tradition. Then the, the ritual was passed around by word of mouth and by imitation and it underwent variation, you know, as it traveled around through, well, more than 100 years at least.
1: Is there something specific about uh, the disease known as consumption, what we now know as tuberculosis, as you said, something about that disease as opposed to others that might have led people to believe it was the work of vampires or some supernatural force?
0: Absolutely. The disease pulmonary tuberculosis is, in most cases, a very slow-moving, slow-burning disease. So once someone gets it, They don't die immediately with a fever, like, say, smallpox or scarlet fever, something like that. They linger for months and months, and they get weaker and weaker and paler and paler. And the symptoms, especially in the later stages of consumption, really mimic what we think of happening to people who have been attacked by vampires. So they start coughing up blood. Your relatives come into the room where you're staying in the sick room in in the morning, and they see your You've got blood around the corners of your mouth. Your bedclothes may be bloody. And it looks like literally something is sucking the blood, something is sucking the life out of you.
1: Was there something else that was going on in the culture of the time or maybe the society of the New England states that might have made this story really resonate with people?
0: Well, New England in the early years, and in fact still in America, we're not done with the supernatural, that's for (laughs) sure. And the mag- what we could call the magic worldview, was very prevalent in New England. I mean, for example, it led to the Salem witchcraft outbreak in 1692. So at least in the hinterlands of New England, people have always dipped into things like astrology, seeing the future, witchcraft, some for good and some for not so good. And I think obviously another important ingredient in this whole story... It's just the effect that consumption had on on the uh, culture at that time. One of every four deaths was attributed to this, and it couldn't be stopped. The medical establishment, when they were being truthful about it, really didn't know what caused it, and therefore they didn't know how to stop it or how to cure it. They may give you some cures, but they didn't work. So nothing worked, and that's when people would turn to folk tradition.
1: You have some eyewitness accounts of these exhumations uh, in your book. Could you maybe read an excerpt uh, for us from one of them so we can get a little bit of a sense of what this was like, what happened here?
0: I'll read you an excerpt from one that's not in the Food for the Dead, but it's in the book that I'm just finishing now. On Monday, July 21, 1788, the Congregational Minister of Belchertown, Massachusetts, confided his suspicions that a deceased family member was feeding on its living kin. So in a letter to his friend Colonel Elijah Williams of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, Reverend Justice Forward described what he called his great concern when his daughter began bleeding inwardly as they were on a journey. He wrote that his anxiety was that of a parent whose family was so wasted with consumption, three dead with it and two more in imminent danger of death. He described how he had consulted many about opening the graves of some of the deceased to see whether there were any signs of the dead preying on the living. And last Friday, Mother Dickinson's grave was opened. She had been buried almost three years. Martha Dickinson, Forward's mother-in-law, was wasted away to a mere skeleton when she died. In an almost clinical description, Forward described what he saw when the grave was opened. The coffin had moisture in it towards the foot Face fallen into the bones, the lungs consuming as fast as any part, did not properly adhere, but seemed like meal, a little wetish. Dr. Scott of this town opened the body. We did not try to separate the lungs from the body, but buried him again. Someone in the gathering suggested that perhaps she was not the right person. Undaunted by this setback, Forward concluded to search further. So on Monday morning, the day his letter was dated, He opened the grave of his married daughter, Martha DeWight, who had died almost six years ago. When they cut into the body, they discovered the lungs were not dissolved, but had blood in them, though not fresh, but clotted. However, Forward considered, the lungs did not appear as we would suppose they would in a body just dead, but far nearer a state of soundness than could be expected. The liver, I am told, was as sound as the lungs. Though apparently convinced that they had found the malevolent corpse, They put the lungs and liver in a separate box and buried it in the same grave 10 inches above the coffin. Apparently, that didn't cure Mercy, the daughter who was hemorrhaging that he talked about in the letter, but only two other family members died after that of consumption and the rest were spared. So whether that's a success or not just depends, I guess, on your point of view.
1: Could you just explain a little bit where you got that
0: account? That was a a personal letter that he wrote in 1788. But the letter didn't appear in public in print until 1877 in the Greenfield, Massachusetts Gazette and Courier. I guess it was in the papers of a nephew of Justice Forward who had passed away.
1: It's such a fascinating account what do we know about what they were exactly looking for? I mean, what did a vampire look to them if indeed they'd found one?
0: Mainly they were looking for what they considered fresh blood in the heart or sometimes in the other organs, like the liver or the lungs. If the blood was liquefied, they would consider that fresh. And that was the tip-off, that this corpse, well, I won't say the corpse itself wasn't completely dead. The theory seems to be that the corpse was a vessel And it was being used by some sort of evil spirit to kill the live people in the family. So what it would do, is would inhabit one of the organs. Usually it was the heart. And from there, it would, through some occult influence, drain the life out of living family members. Usually they want to burn the organ. And sometimes they stipulate the ashes should be fed to anyone in the family who is sick.
1: Can, can you talk a bit about some of the, the practices and the differences in what these exhumations uh, involved?
0: In uh, contiguous parts of Connecticut to Rhode Island, instead of taking out the heart and burning it to ashes, sometimes they would burn the entire corpse and then have family members stand in the smoke or perhaps even inhale the smoke. Another common practice was simply to turn the corpse face down in a prone position and then rebury it. There was a case also in Connecticut where an archaeologist, Nick Bellantoni, was excavating a, a small family cemetery and found that one of the corpses had been exhumed about 10 years after being buried the first time, and the bones had been rearranged. Some of the ribs were broken. The head was removed and placed on top of the chest with the long leg bones and sort of a cross pattern under the skull, almost like a skull and crossbones pattern.
1: You found so many of these accounts that you write about in newspapers of the day, so what can you, what can you glean about the attitudes of the newspaper writers toward these exhumations, which seem so gruesome <laughs> currently, but uh, perhaps were just part of what people did back then?
0: Well, the newspapers usually reacted with shock. You know, they used all of the adjectives you might think would be applied to these uh, rituals. They were horrendous, terrible disgusting, uncivilized superstitions from a, a lower level of civilization. And in a sense, they were just parroting the comparative scientists at that time who were just beginning to look at you know other cultures, what they called primitive cultures. And they were seeing these practices, these rituals, as really survivals or holdovers from a lower level of cultural evolution to people that hadn't quite made it up to civilized the civilized stature that, you know, we in the late 1800s had attained in New England, of course.
1: Despite the revulsion that the public seemed to have with this, this went on for a very long time. Michael, why did it it continue for such a long time?
0: Well, I think the practice continued for as long as tuberculosis was a huge problem. Even though the medical establishment had identified the the germ that was causing tuberculosis and, and announced that discovery in 1882 the last case was 10 years later in 1892 because even knowing what caused the disease didn't lead them to a successful cure for oh you know another 60 years it was 1940s when streptomycin was developed that tuberculosis was finally eradicated and of course now it's coming back big time because of drug resistance I don't think we'll be going to cemeteries exhuming bodies anytime soon. I hope not. But uh, I would, you know, we, we still have this problem.
1: I would hope not as well. I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier the Salem witch trials and, of course, that long history that that predates these exhumations by by a, at least a 100 years in, mm-hmm. in New England. Um, do you draw a, a straight line from the superstitions that led to the witch hysteria of the 1600s to to these phenomenon surrounding vampires some years later?
0: I don't think it's a straight line, but I think that both of these traditions, the witchcraft tradition, the vampire cure, really tap into that same magical worldview that was prevalent in New England. The willingness of people to suspend any kind of, well, what scientists would call rational belief in order to effect a cure The bottom line is when people have hit a dead end, they're going to find a way around it. And folk tradition, one of the good things about folk tradition is it always has an answer. Now, it may not be the scientifically valid answer, but sometimes just having an answer, a path, is better than having none at all.
1: Well, Michael Bell, thank you for sharing these stories with us. I really appreciate you joining us.
0: Sure. My pleasure.
1: Michael Bell is author of Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires. His second book, The Vampire's Grasp, is expected to come out next year. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Marquise Neal, Alan Roberts, John Vosey, and the folks at KERA in Dallas. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.